0: Please find your way with me again to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6. In 1912, the Olympics were held in Stockholm, Sweden. And on the ticket to compete that year in the Olympic marathon race was a Japanese man by the name of Shizo Kanakuri. His race was much anticipated because the year before, in the qualifying race in 1911, he set a new marathon race record. And By every reliable metric, he seemed to be the man with the necessary skills to bring home gold for Japan. But the journey to Sweden from Japan in 1912 was no easy feat, and after an 18-day trip, most of that by train, he was badly in need of physical rest to recoup from the journey. Added to that was the fact that the weather that year in Stockholm was unreasonably, unseasonably warm, which also took a toll on not only his body, but the bodies of the other athletes as well. So by the time the actual race began, Kanakuri was not in good physical shape, but he tried his best to run the race anyway. Sadly, he ended up quitting the race halfway through. Ashamed and embarrassed at his inability to finish, he actually didn't even check in with the Olympic Committee. He just secretly snuck out of the race, went back, recuperated, and snuck back to Japan. That meant, practically, from the viewpoint of the Olympic Committee, his race had no end time. So, on paper, Kanakuri was still running. So years later, his story and the mystery around this Japanese runner who disappeared from the race began to, to spur on wild conspiracy theories about what happened to him and where he went. And so eventually a reporter tracked him down to get the true story. Then, in 1967, 1967, from 1912, he was invited to come back to Stockholm and ceremoniously finish the race. And so he now holds the world record for the longest marathon in Olympic history with a time of 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 3 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. Now, when it comes to running a marathon, there's no shame in not finishing. Running a marathon is difficult for any of us on our best day, let alone under the conditions that this man experienced. But, you know, the scriptures often compare the Christian life... To a race or an athletic competition. Paul does this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As Christians, We are all, in a sense, running the race of the Christian life. And it certainly is a marathon, not a sprint. It's not for the faint of heart. But what are we to make of those who seem to start the race strongly, but in the end fail to finish? It's to this topic that the author of Hebrews turns our attention this morning to the sad and devastating sin of apostasy. And before we dive into our verses this morning, I need us to understand that the passage we'll study today is considered almost universally to be the most difficult passage in the entire letter to the Hebrews. In fact, some would argue it's the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. And because of that, there are a lot of theories and debates that surround this book. But it's important for us to understand that The difficulty of the text is really the subject matter, the sin of apostasy. And there's no way around the fact that this is a heavy and sobering text. This is, in fact, the third of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We've seen the first two. We'll study the third today, and there will be two more yet to come. But of all five, we might say this is the most sober on the list. And there are some interpretive challenges with this passage that we'll have to Look at together. In fact, I'll just warn you ahead of time. Today will be more of the explanation of this passage, and the application will come primarily next week as he applies the passage in the next two verses. But there's no way around the fact that this is a sobering passage, and that's on purpose. We're in fact not to run away from the jolting language of this passage. We're to let the Spirit do His work in us as we take the passage at face value. And so we'll do that together this morning. Just quickly, you remember the theme of the book is the superiority of Christ. We're in this longer section that has four components that we'll put on the screen. We're in the second of those components, a personal admonition and warning, which is chapter 5, actually verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. So we're going to read this morning, beginning in chapter 5, 11, down through verse 8 of chapter 6. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the son of god and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from god but if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned the same theme That we've looked at over the last couple of weeks carries on into today and it's simply this cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity we've understand in context that these people are dealing with spiritual lethargy that's the overarching concern. They have a failure to grasp basic truths. They have a failure to develop a mature palate. And that led us last week to see the overarching concern of spiritual progress. He calls them to press on in the faith, not to stay in that stagnant state. And they're to build on basic truths and to depend on God's power. Now, the discussion of those things leads the author into this third warning passage In the book of Hebrews, in which he wants to to shake them out of their lethargy, to shake them out of their immaturity, to press on to further depths of maturity in Christ. And so our verses this morning will be verse 4 through verse 6, and verses 7 and 8 we'll study next week. Really, it goes from 4 to 8 this warning, but we'll only have time today for verses 4 to 6. So let's just read our section again, beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This third warning is simple. Beware of apostasy Beware of apostasy There are two characteristics of apostasy that we'll see in our passage this morning The first characteristic in verses 4 to 5 is the result of apostasy And this result itself breaks into two parts The first part of this result we'll call the apostate's description The apostate's description How do we know that someone falls into this category of apostasy? Look back at verse 4. He begins here, "...for in the case of those..." "...for in the case of those who..." Now, this is important. Let's stop here just for a moment because there's two key words in this first phrase that really help lay the context for what we're going to study. First of all, the word for. That means that he's still in the same flow of thought. He hasn't left this idea of pressing on to maturity. And so it's, it's in that context that the warning comes. But there's also a second key word, and it is the word those. Now, with this word those, there's a shift in the kinds of pronouns that the author uses, and this is important. Remember, in the instruction last week, he said, let us press on to maturity. That's first person plural. He includes himself. He's talking to the body. He says, let us press on. But here... He switches, and he uses the word those, which is in the third person. Now, why is that important? It's because as he does this, it's almost as if he's taking a brief pause from his primary argument to say, Let's look at a test case. Let's all look together at what happens in the case of a person who does not obey the teaching that I'm giving you right now. And so it's like we all take our eyes and we look at this test case. you remember those commercials in the 90s that were sort of public service announcements? And you remember there was one uh, to keep kids from doing drugs, and this person was standing by the stove, and they had a raw egg in their hand, and they said, this is your brain. And then they would crack that into a hot frying pan, and that egg would begin to sizzle, and they'd say, this is your brain on drugs, and then how would it end? Any questions? Right? Those were effective. We should get back to some of those. That's what he's doing here. It's, 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 let's take a moment and let's look at what happens. Let me show you the devastating result for those who don't press on to maturity and who let this spiritual lethargy go to its final end. That's what he's saying to us here. Now, he understands that the people he's talking to are primarily Believers. The whole letter of Hebrews has a tone from start to finish that makes it clear he, he believes himself to be speaking to believers. I believe the letter of Hebrews is written to Christians primarily. But like any good biblical author or preacher, he also understands that in any congregation there is always a mix of people. Even in the membership of the church, you can never be certain that every single person who professes to be a Christian is, in fact, a Christian. And so it's appropriate for him to make this warning while also understanding that he believes himself to be speaking to Christian people. He makes this clear in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. This will be the verse right after this passage. Listen to how he closes this. But beloved, speaking to the Hebrews... We're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. He's gonna come back, he's he's gonna shake everybody up with this warning and he's gonna come back and say, but listen, I have better hopes for you. I believe that you are true believers, is what he's saying. "I I have hope that you are a Christian. But what verse nine proves is that the description we're about to read in verses four to eight is not a description of a true Christian. He's saying, I'm I'm hopeful of things that accompany salvation for you, meaning the things I just said don't accompany salvation. And so he's giving us a test case of apostasy, which is only true of those who, though they profess Christ, never have truly come to know him. In some way, and we're not given exactly the circumstance in Hebrews, but in some way, The author is confident that this group of Christians has become lethargic, they've become dull of hearing, and they're tempted to harden their hearts against the truth. And he sees the danger of that, and he wants to shake them up so that they see the danger themselves. Now, shortly, we need to move to the actual description that he gives of apostasy, but I need to share with you one more key principle before we do that. Let's talk just briefly about hermeneutics because we need good hermeneutics if we're going to understand what the author means here. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation. It's really how do you read the Bible and come away with an accurate interpretation of what the Bible is saying. We would ascribe to what's called a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. Now stay with me. Don't let your eyes roll back in the back of your head. This is important. Literal historical, grammatical, each of those words matter. We mean literal, we take the text at face value. We take the text literally unless the author gives us a clue in context that he doesn't mean to be taken literally. So when the Psalms talk of mountains dancing and rivers clapping their hands, we're not to think of mountains dancing and rivers clapping their hands. There will be a clue in the text that he doesn't mean to be taken literally. Otherwise, we take it literal. Historical, we need to understand the history that's going on at that time in that place. Thirdly, grammatical, we need to understand the grammar of the text, the actual words, how they relate to one another, so that we can come to the understanding that the author had in mind. That's important. When we come to the Bible, we don't have the right to make it say whatever we want it to say. We come to the Bible, and our job is, by the illumination of the spirit to understand what God meant to say through that original author and that is the meaning of the text and that's what we're going to do here but on occasion as you know as you've read the scriptures there are passages that are more difficult than others are there not? Now, the vast majority of the Bible, truthfully, if you just apply the principles I just mentioned, you'll come away with a good understanding of the text. But there are some places, because God is infinite and we are finite, that there appears to be on the surface a contradiction between what is said here and what is said in other places. There's not a contradiction. But because of our feebleness of mind, we need to do some some study to understand how this passage fits with the other passages of Scripture. We're going to have to do that here. That means we need to understand what's called the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture simply means that the Scriptures are the best interpreter of Scripture. Said otherwise, when you come to a passage that's not clear to you, You need to look at what the Bible says about that same topic in other places where it speaks clearly and let that come in to help you understand what's being said in this passage. So we're going to do that as we look at Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at the immediate context and we're going to look at the biblical context. And by the time we're done, we will come away with what the author intends for us to understand. Now, let's look at this actual description of apostasy. There are five descriptions, five descriptions that all center around participles. Participles act sort of like verbs, but they're descriptive words. They, they modify or explain the primary idea or verb in the passage, and that's what happens here. Let's look at these five descriptions. So look back at the text, verse 4, For in the case of those who, here's the first description, have once been Enlightened. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now the word enlightened here refers to a person who's come to understand and maybe even believe the correct, accurate gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, their understanding of the gospel and the scriptures may even lead this person eventually to become a leader in the church. Maybe even a pastor or an elder in the church. They've come to understand the gospel and they can clearly articulate that gospel to other people. There is an interpretive tradition in church history that sees this as a reference to Christian baptism. I only mention that because a lot of commentators bring that up, but I, I can't find anything in the text that would call this baptism. This enlightenment must refer to this person's understanding of the gospel. I do think it's right to assume that this person that's described here is the kind of person who has assimilated into church life. They probably have been baptized. They've probably made a public profession of faith in Christ. That They maybe even go on to, as I said, assimilate into church life and even get to positions of leadership. But while that's true, the immediate context and the biblical context makes it clear that whatever this word enlightened means it can't mean that they go as far as to become a true Christian. They've not been truly regenerated. They've not been converted and justified by Christ. Now, I will admit that this word enlightened normally is a word we would use to describe a person who's come to know Christ fully. But remember verse 9 of chapter 6. At the end of this, the author himself says, "...I'm convinced of better things than what I just described of you." things that accompany salvation so in his mind what the description he's giving here is not a description of a true christian so the question then is why give this description and all of the rest of the descriptions except for one sound like he's talking about a believer why give a description that sounds like a believer when you're talking about someone who's not a believer the answer to that is because an apostate is not simply an unbeliever A true apostate's a person who at one time gave an outward testimony and an outward appearance of being a true Christian. An apostate's one who's lived in the community of the church and has done so successfully without suspicion probably for years. You say, well, how do you come up with that explanation? Let's just think for a moment about the apostates that we know of in Scripture. Think for a moment about Judas Iscariot. Judas was in the inner circle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the twelve. And other than Jesus, Jesus, of course, knew who he was. It was prophesied long ago. But other than him, the the rest of the disciples had no clue. In fact, they put Judas in charge of the money that was given to support Jesus' ministry. And when Judas, Judas is revealed as the one who was the betrayer, the rest of them are shocked. They can't believe it. What about Demas? Demas is another apostate mentioned in Scripture. Understand that Demas is mentioned both in Colossians and Philemon as being a fellow worker of Paul. Not not just someone that followed him around, a fellow worker, a minister alongside Paul. Listen to Philemon verses 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Demas had every appearance as being on the same level as Luke, who wrote Acts and who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And yet when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, listen to what Paul says now later in his ministry. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is why the author in Hebrews is inspired to use descriptions that are most commonly used of true believers. It's because the apostate has a personal confession and an outward life that causes others to believe for even a lengthy period of time that this person is a true Christian. And in the case of the apostate, the deception is so effective that not even the disciples or the Apostle Paul himself could tell the difference until that person defected from the faith. That's why he uses such strong language to describe these people. That brings us then to a second description. Not only are these apostates enlightened, it says they are those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Tasted of the heavenly gift. As with the rest of this passage, there's a lot of debate about what the heavenly gift is it could refer to Christ, it could refer to the gospel, it could refer to the Holy Spirit, or some combination of those. Some have even said it refers to communion, which I don't see here at all. But I do think that these are, these are to be taken as general descriptions of life in the church. Th- these are people who have experienced the benefits, as many benefits as an unbeliever can experience, by living in and amongst Christians in the life of the church. He's not intending for us to, to point out specific, distinct details by each one of these phrases, but this heavenly gift likely refers to Christ and the gospel of Christ. That They've tasted of these things. They've, they've been in and around the body of Christ at a deep level. They've heard the gospel. They've seen the gospel at work in the lives of other Christians. But this language also clues us in on the fact that the, the author may still have in mind the Old Testament context of the wilderness generation. You remember the last warning that we studied? It's been a while. But the last warning was based around the illustration of the people of, came, that came out of Egypt under Moses and failed to enter into the promised land. They were a people who saw the work of God. They were in the community of the people of God. They saw miraculous things. There was no doubt in the mind of those people that Yahweh was God and yet they failed to enter into the promised land. Hebrews chapter 3 describes these people, says for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? It was that group of people and with whom he was angry with whom was he angry for 40 years was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that he w- they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Here's what I think is happening here in this passage. In the last warning, he said, let's look at the illustration of the people of Israel and all that they saw and experienced and still fell away into a lack of faith. Now let's look at what a person experiences when they live life in the Christian community and all the things they see and all the testimony of the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ and look what happens to that person who has that much evidence and yet still hardens their heart in the end against Christ. That brings him to a third description. They've also been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, again, Normally a description that we would take as a believer, but he says in context that's not what he's meaning here. So what does it mean? In what way has an apostate become a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Well, one way we know is from John 16 that the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin. This is John 16, verse 7 to 11. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, Jesus speaking, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he goes on to explain that. So these unbelievers, undoubtedly, if they lived in the life of the community, they they, they felt the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings as they saw themselves out of step with the Word of God. But in addition to that, we're going to see here in a moment... That They also witnessed the work of the Spirit even in miraculous ways because of the time period in which they lived, having seen the ministry of the apostles. We'll get to that in a moment. And so it seems like these have become partakers of the Spirit in the sense that they've lived in and around the community of believers as well as they have experienced likely the internal conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings. It brings us to a fourth description of these people. This fourth description is also using the participle, the word tasted, but he gives two descriptions based on that one word. He says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Let's deal first of all with this this phrase, the good word of God. What is that a reference to? Well, these apostates have had the immense privilege that we have every week to come and we hear the word of God. This is the good word of God. They've sat under the teaching of the word of God week in and week out hearing the glories of Christ proclaimed. Many of them for years heard the good words of the scripture. Not only that, in conjunction with hearing the good words of the scripture, they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. Now, what's that that referring to? Well, again, I think this phrase overlaps with this idea of being partakers of the Holy Spirit. It means that these people got to see glimpses of what it would be like to live in Christ's kingdom, with Christ physically ruling over that kingdom in righteousness. How did they see that? Well, they saw it, first of all, by the transformation of, of life that happens of those who come to know Christ and co- true conversion as they really turn from sin and follow Christ. But these are also said to have seen real divine miracles. That, they, that Remember, they were contemporaries of the apostolic ministry. And earlier in Hebrews, the author says that this group saw the testimony of divine miracles to the ministry of the apostles. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 2 to 4, which says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now listen to this progression. After it, that is this message of salvation, was at the first spoken through the Lord, so spoken by Jesus, it was confirmed to us, notice he says himself and the, the Hebrews, by those who heard. So it was confirmed to us by the apostles, God also testifying with them, with the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So he says, these people have seen the, the, the validation, the, the miraculous ministry of of the apostles validating them as the true messengers of Christ and validating the message that they preached, the gospel. They've tasted of this, this future era of what it would be like to live in Christ's kingdom. Now, all of these descriptions added up present a case in which these people, like the wilderness generation, know the truth and they have seen the truth undeniably verified. That's the experience so far of the apostate. But there's one final description. And here everything changes. The final description says, and then have fallen away. In the case of those who are described by all of these other wonderful descriptions, and yet in the end have fallen away. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that this particular word, fallen away, is used. Because of that, many have debated its meaning. But if you just take the context, it's clear. This is not a simple drifting away, a casual drifting away. This is a hard decision, a hard heart, turning away finally. There's finality to this. This is apostasy. This is another indication that all the previous descriptions about these people cannot mean that they were true Christians. That's because it's immediately clear in the verses that follow, but it's also clear when we apply the principle I mentioned earlier, the analogy of Scripture. When we look at other passages, the Bible is crystal clear that it is an impossibility, it's impossible, for a person who has truly been converted to lose their salvation. It's impossible because God won't allow it to happen. Why do I say that with such confidence? Well, let me attempt to overwhelm you with evidence. We're going to look at four quick passages. I'm going to read them in succession. John 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1.6 six. Paul says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times that's just four of many passages that we could look at as we we bring in the rest of the scriptures to shed light on what's being said here and what's not being said here. And the the scriptures are clear that salvation is a divine work of God in which he brings to salvation those he has chosen in eternity past and he will hold them fast. And so whatever this passage means, it cannot mean that a true believer loses his or her salvation. So if it doesn't mean that, well, what does it mean? Thankfully, we have other passages that speak to this reality as well. What do we make of a person who seems from every other angle to be a believer and walks away from the faith and from the church? Well, the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 19, beginning in verse 18, Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. Now listen to how he describes these people. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So though an apostate may be indistinguishable from true believers while he or she remains in the body of the church... The true nature of his or her heart will become evident in that moment in which they defect from the faith and thereby leave the gathering of believers. Now the consequences of that abandonment of Christ and the gospel are devastatingly serious. In fact, it's, it's this next verse that leaves people shaking in their boots on numerous occasions, I've had people come into my office for counsel and they sit down and they are, they are trembling and there are tears and I can tell that they are they're upset. Not just upset, but seem to be afraid. And when I ask them what's wrong, they say, I was reading in the scripture and I came across a passage. And immediately I'm thinking, I bet it was Hebrews 6. And often it is. And that's because the consequences for apostasy are unthinkable. This is the second part of this first point, the apostate's judgment. The apostate's judgment. Look back at the text, verse 6. For those who are described by these things and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now this is the statement that brings people trembling into my office. This is the statement that perhaps has your knees knocking together as you sit here this morning in your chair. And it's important that we let this stern warning do its work in us. We cannot make the mistake of immediately trying to soften and and explain away the words of this verse. That's our temptation, is just sort of, well, it it can't mean that, it probably means this, and don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. We, We can't do that. In fact, we can't see this in the English translation, but this is actually stated in the original text in a way that's much stronger than it is here. Because the very first word, all the way back in verse four, This whole thing begins in verse 4 in the Greek text with the word impossible. Impossible. Now we can't follow that structure as we translate it or it will break the rules of grammar for the English language. But the way the Greek text reads is it says impossible for those who are described by these things to be renewed. To repentance In the Greek language, when you want to emphasize something, you take the word order and you put the word you want to emphasize at the beginning of the sentence, the beginning of the statement, and that's exactly what the author does here. Impossible, he says. Remember, the author's dealing with a group of Christians who've become dull of hearing. They're spiritually apathetic. He's trying to grab them by the shirt and shake them out of their apathy. It's almost as if he's picturing them walking dangerously near the edge of a cliff, It's as if they're just meandering along and their spiritual laziness as if there's nothing to worry about and he sees them edging towards this cliff and he says, time out. You understand, the people that go off that cliff, there's no return from that cliff. Wake up. Stop acting like a child in your faith. Get serious about the things of God. This is not a joke. This is not a laughing matter. You don't have time. Today is the day of salvation. That's the way he wants us to feel when we read this phrase. It's impossible to renew such a person to repentance. This is a difficult phrase. We have to admit, though, it's not difficult primarily because the words are hard to understand. It's difficult because the concept is difficult to understand. Understand when he says this word renew, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Taking all things into consideration in the context, he must be meaning it's impossible to renew them to that that initial false but public profession of faith and repentance. It, It cannot have been a real profession of repentance, but there was a profession There was a public profession in this person's life in which they initially claimed to really believe in Christ and really to be repentant of their sins. But now that's been made clear to be a farce by their walking away. We also need to be clear that this impossibility, whatever it means that it's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance, understand that it does not in any way indicate an inadequacy on the part of God as if it's impossible because suddenly they've just gone just beyond his reach, as if his arm is too short. There is no limiting the sovereign grace of God, and that's not the intention of the passage here. The intention here is to show us the true devastating nature of the apostate's heart, what has happened, the finality that's happened in the heart of the apostate. This is an important place for us to stop for a moment and recognize that there are really four responses to the gospel there are four now you might have thought there were two there are two broad responses but in the second there are actually three different types of rejection the first response to Jesus is what we would expect genuine believers those who have a true understanding of the gospel and by the grace of God have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation I pray that's true of every person here Secondly, we have unbelievers, those who do not believe in Jesus or the gospel and remain unrepentant and dead in their sin. But there are also two other categories of unbelievers. They are all unbelievers, but the scripture parses out these other categories. The third category I would call false converts. False converts, those who believe themselves to be genuine believers but have a misunderstanding of the true gospel. They're missing some key component of the gospel or they understand all of the components but they're not truly repentant of their sin. They're holding on to their sin and therefore they are self-deceived. This is the false convert. The fourth would be this category of apostates. And I want you to see this because there's a separation between the false convert and the apostate. An apostate refers to those who have a true knowledge of Christ in the gospel and profess to have repented and believe in him, but who in the end reject him with full knowledge of who he is and join themselves wholeheartedly with those who betrayed and crucified Jesus. This is why the judgment laid on those who are here apostates is so severe. They know the true gospel. They know the true Christ, and in spite of their knowledge of these things, they make a willful choice to reject Jesus and go as far as giving hearty approval to those who nailed him to the cross. Now you say, why do you say that with such confidence? It's because of what the author tells us next. And this is characteristic number two, the cause of apostasy. The cause of apostasy. Here, the author lets us in with his inspired words on the heart of the apostate. What goes on to possibly cause a person with all that knowledge and experience to fall away? Well, there are two manifestations of the apostate's heart that result in his judgment. Manifestation number one, we'll call agreement with Christ's crucifixion. Agreement with Christ's crucifixion. Look back at the text. This is halfway through verse 6. It's impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. They again crucify to themselves the Son of God. What does this mean? This is the, the cause of the apostate's departure and the cause of his or her judgment. What does it mean to crucify to themselves the Son of God? To be honest, this is This is so reprehensible. The thought of what this means is difficult even to explain in words. But essentially, this is a person who in their heart has made the judgment that it was right to crucify Jesus Christ. They can't go back and physically join that group there yelling at the foot of the cross or yelling at his trial, but in their heart, it's as if they have full knowledge of who Christ is, they know the gospel, they even know it to be true at a cognitive level, and yet sinfully they step back and they jump into that crowd and they add their voice and say, crucify him, crucify him. That's the heart of the apostate. They crucify to themselves the Son of God. Not only that, the second manifestation of the heart of the apostate that results in his judgment is agreement with Christ's shame. Agreement with Christ's shame. He closes this verse with the words, and put him to open shame. You remember the crucifixion was a perfected form of execution. And it was perfected to torture a person physically to the limit, but it was also perfected to shame a person publicly so that they were wholly embarrassed as well as suffering. There they are, completely naked upon the cross, put up by a a public street so that all the passerbys can see them as they suffer there in their shame. And in their agony this person the apostate says that is exactly what should have been done to Jesus this is why so often a a true apostate doesn't simply become an unbeliever that slips into the shadows the true apostate becomes hostile to the faith and who ridicules the faith publicly they want to put Christ to open shame they want to make a mockery of Christ in the gospel but the reason that their salvation then, their renewal to repentance is impossible is because they've failed to understand in their sin that in rejecting Christ, they have rejected the only name by which anyone can be saved. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other savior. There is no plan B. You harden your heart against Jesus Christ and you nail him to the cross in your heart and you you join your voice with the mockers and you shame him and you've jumped off the cliff because you've rejected the only means of salvation that exists. There is no hope for that person because there is no other gospel for that person. You see, the false convert has a misunderstanding of the gospel. There's, there's hope to come to the, the false convert and lovingly share the true gospel with them and call them to true repentance. And God may, in his grace, open their eyes and bring them to true salvation. But for the apostate, he comes to you and he can share the gospel with you and he can share it accurately. And then he turns around and says, you're a fool if you believe that. That's the apostate. He needs no new information. He knows what he's doing. And he's rejected Christ. But don't forget, the author says in verse 9, we we have better ideas of you. He said, "I, I don't expect this of you. I expect things that accompany salvation. He's not saying, you're all a bunch of apostates. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Remember, he's, this is a test case. This is, hey, let's look at the seriousness of what happens when a person jumps off this cliff. Wake up, you're, you're, you're towing the edge here. Let's, let's come back and let's grow. Let's move on past the basics that have tripped you up for so long. The author says, I'm convinced of better things for you and I, I believe he would say he's convinced of better things for you, Northlake Bible Church. And you know Why? It's because you're here, it's because you're here. When a person comes into my office shaking with tears, concerned that they've fallen into this sin of apostasy because they've fallen into a certain sin or they've, they've walked away from the church for a time but now they've come back and, and this was a person who now is convicted over their sin and who wants to follow Christ but they think, oh, is it going to be impossible for me because of, of what I've done? I have the privilege of saying, this is not describing you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in my office crying over your sin. The apostate no longer trembles at the gospel, no longer trembles at Christ, no longer has any sensitivity to his sin. He knows what he's doing. And so this morning, I want to say to you, if you recognize that you are not a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have never come to a place of true repentance, where you have, have believed that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation, that he died on the cross for sin and rose again on the third day, that he is the Son of God, and even now is at the right hand of the Father. If you've never come to know that, understand this morning, you don't need to be analyzing whether or not you're an apostate. You you need to just humbly repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ in the gospel. He is eager and willing to save. Don't let the difficulties of this passage somehow trip you up and cause you to get, get stuck here. You just humble yourself and repent of your sin and run in faith to Christ and you'll find salvation. And so it is that the first appropriate application of such a text as this is simply to test your own heart. Test your own heart this morning. Have you personally come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin in repentance and faith? If the answer is yes to those questions, then the author's intention is not to shake your faith and your confidence in the gospel. It is to warn us of the deadly danger of what happens when a person jumps off that cliff. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then understand he holds you in his hand and he will never let you go. And so the second application of this passage is to praise God for preservation. Praise God for preservation. The fact that God holds us in his hand and commits to cause us to continue in the faith doesn't mean that we won't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that we'll have perfect faith. But it does mean that the Christian will be in an ongoing battle with sin and God in his grace will cause that Christian to grow and to mature painful step by painful step. So praise God, Christian, that if you're truly in Christ, you need not fear apostasy in the truest sense because God will never let you go. But if you're here this morning and you're a true believer who's become lazy in your pursuit of Christ and your sanctification has has stagnated for a time and this is a stern warning that's meant to grab you by the shirt and say, wake up, man. What are you doing? And that's the third and final application. It's the one that we've had every week for the last few weeks. Press on to maturity. That's the point. The true believer hears a passage like this and is shaken awake. When you hear the descriptions of an apostate crucifying Christ in his heart and putting him to open shame, it should make your stomach churn. It should make you feel ill to think of ever saying such a thing. And that's on purpose. That churning in the stomach ought to then cause us to churn hard for the Lord and to say, wait a minute, I don't want anything to do with this lethargy that I've let myself get into. I love Christ and I want to pursue Christ. As we close, I do just want to say one thing. What about those we love? What about those we love? I know some of you have had the sad experience of watching family members and close friends walk away from the faith. And I can see how a passage like this might make you wonder, is hope lost? Are they off the cliff? Is is they at a point of no return? I want to encourage you this morning that God sovereignly has not given us the ability to know the full heart of any man in fact paul even is suspicious of his own understanding of his own heart in the scriptures and so let me encourage us to leave the secret things with god deuteronomy 29 29 god alone knows the true state of a person's heart what he calls us to do is to pray fervently to share the gospel fervently to love them in the name of Christ fervently and to trust a good and sovereign God. You don't have to worry about determining the true state of the, the heart of your loved one who seems at this time to have walked away from the faith. You keep praying, you keep sharing, and you keep trusting until the Lord brings you home. I hope that encourages us this morning to never underestimate the saving grace of God.